All right, here we are again, episode four, Layman's Terms. Y'all thought I would give up. We're here again with uh, Jaron Eisenberg over here. Uh, Jaron, you want to just give everybody a little background of like uh, who you are really quick? Sure. My name is Jaron Eisenberg, and I'm the Chief Operating Officer of Groundswell Startups, and we are a high-tech incubator and co-working space located right outside of downtown Melbourne. Yeah, and it's a fantastic place. If you're in the Melbourne area and you've never been over there, you're missing out. So uh, get on it. So, <clears throat> Jaron, I really wanted to talk to you to kind of get into just like what led you to Groundswell, but I want to get the the whole picture because you're just an interesting person. And every time I talk to you, I'm like, dang, ugh, we need to sit down. Uh, so here we are, finally. So uh, just take us through kind of where you were at um, at the end of high school, what you wanted to do, and then what you decided to pursue uh, in college. Yeah, so I was the worst high school student ever. <laughs> um, I barely graduated high school. Um, so I did two years at community college um, down in South Florida, and I didn't know what I wanted to do, but I knew one thing for sure, which was that I wanted to go away to school. I did not want to stay in South Florida any longer. <laughs> Um, so I went and I looked at a few schools and I stepped on the campus of the University of South Florida and I just knew for whatever reason you have those moments, I just knew that that was the place that I was supposed to be. So I transferred there as a junior, um, so which was a different experience from what most people have. Um, and I took a sociology course and I kind of just said, yeah, like, this makes sense to me. I love this. This not only helps me understand the world around me, but it helps me understand how my life has been influenced by social forces. Um, so I majored in sociology and I finished my bachelor's degree and I knew I wanted to get a master's degree. So I went and I took the GRE and I got probably the worst score you could ever get on the GRE. So I took it again and I got the same exact score, which I hear is pretty difficult to do. So I did very poorly <laughs> twice. So I went um, to my graduate, uh, to, to the graduate office and I just said, listen, I don't have the test scores to get into this program, but I want to be here really badly and I want to teach. So if you if you let me into this program and you give me a teaching position, I'll do everything the graduate assistants are doing and you don't have to pay me. And I had really strong relationships with my professors, which was a huge lesson um, that really shaped how I do things going forward, which is those relationships that I built and them knowing me personally made that an easy yes for them. Mm -hmm. And so that first semester I taught, I got really good grades. Um, and at the end of it, my uh, thesis chair, she later became my thesis chair, called me and said, great job. You know, we have a full scholarship for you. So I ended what? up getting a scholarship. I ended up teaching. But really, um, that decision that those that that woman made, Dr. Marilee Mayberry, and I still keep in touch with her, fundamentally shaped my life. Like she gave me an opportunity that I probably didn't deserve at the time. Um, I needed some help catching up to my peers in some areas, and she really dug in and took an interest in me. And it also turned out that I met my husband in graduate school. We were in the same cohort together. <laughs> That's awesome. um, and my best friend, um, Amy, was also there. So I've just had lifelong relationships. And like for me, everything stems back to that one decision they made where mm -hmm. they were like, yeah, we're going to take a chance on you. Take a shot. Sometimes that's, shot. that's all you got to do, and yeah. you're, you're going to find some really good people by yeah. uh, by doing that. 
Um, so basically, let's let's go back to sociology for a second, because this is something that I have hardly any attachment to and don't know a lot about. So what would you say is kind of the overarching definition of sociology and how did, does it fit into, I guess, the uh, academic field? Like, where do you see other people that got sociology degrees going after they graduate? Yeah, so sociology is really the understanding and the study of social structure and how things impact us. So basically, we could look at a person's circumstances and we can say, and we tend to say in American culture, very individualistic reasons as to explain that person's life circumstances, where a sociologist is going to take a step back and we're going to look at social cultural, historical forces and how that shapes a person's individual biography. And we can look at society and see patterns based on race, based on class, based on gender, and we can better understand that person's lived experience connected to broader social forces. Um, so I would say a lot of people that get degrees in sociology, um, they probably go on a path to get a PhD and study and stay in academia, mm -hmm. or they work for like social research research organizations, I can say that it has drastically changed. So when I graduated in 2009 with my master's in sociology, and I would tell people I had a sociology degree, they would go, are you a social worker? And I was like, no, I would have got a social work degree. I'm a sociologist. Now, um, very much people understand what it is, and there's more value to it. I think there's more public sociology being done. People are more working hands-on in the field, like mm -hmm. I am doing kind of grassroots community organizing. And so people better understand it. But I also think the political climate of where we are, where there's all these differences, there's all these generations in the workforce at the same time, people really understand the value of having the skills of sociology in the workplace and how that can fundamentally shape um, culture, organizational structure, mm -hmm. um, and all of those things. Yeah, when you talk about culture, that's, uh, are you talking about like organizational culture or just in general how people, I guess, operate when they're in, you know, the, uh, I guess, places like Groundswell, uh, where you kind of have a sphere of influence? Yeah, I think it's a little of both, right? How <clears throat> I operate in the workplace, um, the the values and the perspective that I bring is largely shaped by my lived experiences, which is largely shaped by the socioeconomic status of the family I was born into, the neighborhood I grew mm. up in, the resources that I had access to. So to be able to take a step back and meet people where they're at and think about those things, like this person's not just doing this because they're selfish or because they're mm -hmm. lazy, right? This person may not have had access to the same experiences. So I always think a really good example is you're a young student taking your SAT or an FCAT or some other standardized test, right? Um, and that questions and those readings are talking about getting on a plane and go, or going to a museum and having these experiences. But if you grow up in a low-income community where you're really kind of segregated from these experiences, those things are very foreign to you. So mm -hmm. I've always been really interested in how people can acquire what we call social and cultural capital to kind of use it to kind of for social mobility. Okay, so social mobility as in kind of climbing the chain and starting to gather those experiences that you were talking about? Gathering those experiences, um, getting into networks that can help you get connections for jobs. Um, economically, what does that mean for you, mobility? How can you get access mm -hmm. to better quality resources, whether that's education, jobs? 
How can you break into networks that can help you make those connections? So much of what happens in our lives happens because we know someone who knows someone who knows someone. Mm -hmm. But if you're, um, if where you live and what you're influenced by people don't have those experiences of working in corporate America, of saving for retirement, of doing those types of things, owning a home, those things are very foreign to you and it can be very difficult to navigate. And so being able to step back and really understand an individual's lived experiences and how it fits into the broader like social structure is an incredibly valuable tool that sociologists bring to the workforce. Yeah, that's fantastic and very interesting. And as you were talking, uh, this is something that I've kind of pondered recently. I've been seeing articles uh, everywhere about, <clears throat> you know, labor shortages. And as people come back to work from the pandemic, uh, they want higher pay, better benefits. They're they're not really willing to, to take a punch on stuff like that anymore. So my kind of uh, mindset about it, because people are starting to get more educated, uh, it doesn't necessarily have to come from these huge academic institutions of the past and everything is basically online now. So if you have access to the internet, uh, you can basically see what's happening in the world. And if you want to run a certain direction, you pretty much can. Uh, and there's, you know, ways to do that networks of support. And like you said, it's who, you know, you can leverage that, I guess, internet connection to build your network and, and do what you want to do. So what I feel like is in America, eventually, maybe not in our lifetime, but eventually there's going to be some kind, I don't want to say revolution, but oh, I was going to call it a labor revolution, but <laughs> the books that I've seen uh, that word in, you know, usually it comes around like socialist and, and communist terms. But anyway, uh, I think that we were already kind of seeing that. So do you think that that's going to, I don't think prolificate is a word. Um, do you think that's going to be like a substantial thing that big corporations are going to have to worry about, about labor shortages and then other people uh, climbing the chain as well and not willing to take as much crap for them from them anymore? Because you've obviously seen a lot of people come from the big you know, corporate careers and start their own ventures. So do you think that's going to become more commonplace in the future? I do. I think people have access to tools to do it. But I also, I, I, I agree, right? We are kind of seeing a pushback from the workforce that said, hey, you know, I'm working full time or more than full time and I still can't live. I can't pay my rent with things left over. And this pandemic um, kind of gave people who've never really had a break before from doing that kind of grinding work a little bit of break and breathing room. And so I think that employers are going to have to step up and, and meet people where they're at because one of the biggest uh, obstacles is affordable housing, right? And so mm -hmm. if people can't live, if they can't comfortably feed their kids or go on a vacation once a year, we're seeing that rub. But we're also seeing two other things, which is that millennials were told, go to school, go to school, go to school. And that hasn't always paid off for them. Um, they've been kind of hit by, you know, the Great Recession and now the pandemic. And because of that Great Recession, 
you know, the boomers are retiring later and later, which means that these mm -hmm. positions to move up through are not available for millennials. So they're jumping from job to job to be able to get that money. We're also seeing a huge growth in contract labor. So people that mm -hmm. are just, you know, 1099ers and they're not getting benefits. And so they don't have, you know, the 401ks or the healthcare. So I think you are seeing this rub. I think it's a good conflict where you'll start seeing people meet in the middle. I mean, we've already seen even here locally restaurants raising their hourly wage to $18 so that they can get people back in the workforce so that they can open up their businesses. Will some of that be passed on to the consumer? Absolutely, right? Are we, we can look at places like Seattle where, you know, they have done $20 minimum wage in areas and they have passed it on and people are still buying food there and they're still shopping in their restaurants. So it's not perfect, right? But people have to be able to meet their means to live their life and live in a somewhat secure and comfortable way. Absolutely. And I agree with you. And that's what upsets me so much about the federal minimum wage being as low as it is, even though uh, it was recently increased, right? Isn't it 15 an hour now for federal employees? But that's just federal employees. It's not across the board, right? Correct. Okay. Yeah. Because as somebody who's my first uh, internship in my MBA program, they only paid me $10 an hour and 20, 20 hours a week. And everything was under the table. And it was just... I'm not saying that I can necessarily identify with people who are really working uh, hard, long hours in a manual labor job to, to feed their family and still not necessarily being able to get it done. But I just know that people need a living wage uh, because that's a part of happiness. When you have to worry about, you know, what you're going to feed your kids every day, it's not like a set thing. Uh, it, it takes a toll on your mental health and... Uh, your happiness and everybody wants to be happy and when you're not happy when you're not secure uh, you're gonna look for other things to make you feel that way and some of those things aren't necessarily good for uh, yourself or people around you so it's 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 a really important topic and also when you look at where all this other money is going for from to in the government as well as uh, you know the the program programs that have taken a cut that are supposed to be benefiting society as a whole it's it's pretty uh disappointing honestly uh and that's a whole nother thing we can get into i have a lot to say on that but i don't want to make it too political <laughs> uh yeah but we're talking about uh sociology uh so maybe this kind of falls in that category have you ever uh read the book by jared diamond called guns germs and steel i have not that's a good one. So basically it talks about, and if you're very religious, I don't apologize. <laughs> no, but it's a great book for, for anybody because it kind of takes you back through basically the uh, kind of journey of the human, you know, the cradle of life back in Africa and how it expanded out from there and why different societies developed at different rates, uh, basically just because of the resources and the climate that they were that they were operating in. So it's, it's very interesting. I, I suggest it. Um, okay. So moving on, kind of got on a tangent, but we love those here. Uh, so after college, you're out in the workforce with your master's. I can't remember. Did we go over your first 
official position, your first professional position? We did not. So um, I graduated <coughs> in 09, which was the time of the housing bubble and what we now call the Great Recession. And so my husband and I were actually on our ways. We had plans to move to Colorado State and we were going to get PhDs and then Kind of the world seemed pretty chaotic um, and colleges were getting nervous and didn't have as much funding and stipends and we had more student loans that we know what to do with. So we came to Melbourne where my husband grew up and we were just going to stay here for a month and then I applied for a job at Florida Tech and my first job was a program coordinator working in the online degree programs and my reference that helped me get this job was Dr. Marilee Mayberry, right, who made that, <laughs> that call for me so long ago. And so I worked in when the online programs were just getting started. So I would hire faculty. I would work on curriculum. Um, I would volunteer for a ton of things because I really wanted to show them what my skills were. Mm -hmm. I knew I wasn't going to be able to. St I wasn't going to stay in that role forever. I had mm -hmm. goals of moving up. So I had the opportunity to publish peer-reviewed journals with professors while I was a staff wow, member here. Okay and work on really cool projects like the X culture, which brings together students from all different countries. So I was the, kind of the first administrator for that project. And then um, I spent about four years doing that role and learning a ton and just really loving the people that I worked around. And then I went and I worked for the Women's Business Center at Florida Tech, mm -hmm. and I was their operations manager. Um, and it's an organization that I love dearly. Catherine Rudloff, you should get her on this podcast because she's tremendous. They do really good, important work to help female entrepreneurs. But I was only there a short time because I got um, asked if I was interested in being the executive director of Melbourne Main Street, which is a nonprofit that works to revitalize downtown Melbourne. And I didn't really know what that meant at the time, but I knew that I wanted to expand my experiences. Mm -hmm. And I knew that it was a very interesting time in downtown's history. So I said yes. And that yes turned to be really a fundamental shift in my career and what I've been able to do and has really kind of put me on the path that I'm on now. That's fantastic. So <clears throat> going back to your time at Florida Tech, so you knew that you didn't want to stay there. Was that because you kind of looked down the road and you didn't see any kind of uh, mobility uh, within the organization? Or were you just like, this is just a stepping stone anyway uh, to something I want to do? It was kind of a, initially, I don't want to say a means to an end, but just something... Uh, to just throw on the resume at first, and then you kind of fell in love with it, got involved with all the the research and stuff. So, and also, this is, ah, I'm sorry, the peer-reviewed papers that you were talking about. So what exactly was your your role in that? Yeah, so at the time, they were um, we were piloting these study abroad to Spain programs, um, and we made the decision to open that experience up to online students. Now, Florida Tech's online student population is very different from your traditional on-campus. Mm -hmm. Those students um, are more likely to be lower-income students, less access to experiences. So what happens, again, when you provide people that wouldn't traditionally have the opportunity to get a passport, travel abroad, and see these things that they saw there, and put them together with traditional on-campus students. What happens there? How do you facilitate social and cultural capital? So I was able to bring that perspective to the trip. 
um, and work on writing all of the literature reviews and all of the research around the acquisition of capital. And then once you acquire it, what do you do with it? Okay, I've had this experience, but now how do I turn it into something that benefits me going forward? Mm-hmm. So um, I think we published two or three articles on those topics, and I did mostly all the literature reviews. Wow, that's that's really interesting. Because uh, I don't think anybody really thinks about that when you talk about... Uh, not sociological, the, okay, you're saying capital, what was the? Social and cultural capital. Social and cultural capital. So I feel like a lot of people, and I don't know, maybe this just comes along with privilege, when they have those experiences, a lot of people take it for granted, and they're not like, oh, how is this experience going to better me as an individual? Uh, They're just like, oh, that was fun, on to the next thing. So what would be your advice for people that really want to make these experiences better themselves, I guess you could say. Yeah, I think it's all about the relations that the relationships that you build when you're having these experiences, making sure that people get to know you because people will want to help you, mm-hmm. right? Being very gracious, being sure that you're following up with people and being thoughtful with people. So, I mean, the fact that I still keep in touch with my graduate professors, right? Um, that I went to lunch yesterday with my first boss at Florida Tech, right? Those are relationships that are really important and we're able to tug on each other and each other's networks when we need something, whether it's a job or help with a resume or whatever that might be, advice. And so just growing your network and taking really good care of those people in your network, I think is one of the most valuable things people can do. Yeah, and I agree. And and it's the little things, just, just start a conversation. Just be be talkative. And I know there's a lot of introverts out there just going like, get out of here. Uh, but it's worth it because, I mean, I was I definitely had a time in my life where I was in a shell and I didn't really like talking to people I didn't know, especially if if I knew that they weren't exactly proficient with uh, English because I've, I've had some experience traveling uh, abroad. And one of the best things you can do is just talk to the locals. They are so much fun. I still talk to... Uh, Katerina, she's in <laughs> Santorini. She's uh, her, her and her family own and operate just like a little a little shop uh, that was probably two blocks from her Airbnb. And every morning we'd get coffee and breakfast from her, and she's just the sweetest person ever. And she <laughs> keeps asking, she's like, "When are you guys gonna be back?" Yeah. And I'm like, I don't know, "Sometime, I hope." <laughs> but yeah, so definitely, definitely recommend that. And that's great advice, uh, by the way. So also you mentioned uh, X culture. So I actually, you know, obviously was in in international business with Mr. Muth and did the X culture project and had a great time uh, with that, especially, you know, since we're embedded in a a multicultural team, two students from Brazil and then one from Colombia. So uh, I guess what was your hand uh, in X culture? Did you just kind of help organize the program and how it was going to be uh, done at Florida Tech or? So I was actually working directly with um, the creator of X Culture and Mr. Wow. Muth, and we would do all the team assignments. And then we would also troubleshoot uh, kind of any um, instances that would pop up amongst the teams, right? Because when you put people together from all different cultures, from all different time zones that have different perspectives on each other's cultures and gendered mm-hmm. and what role women should play when they're on a team, um, things come up and you have to problem solve that. And you have to problem solve that, again, by understanding 
the perspective that each person is bringing because of their cultural influences and the way that their society mm-hmm. is structured. So I did a lot of Excel sorting um, and a lot of just problem solving. Yeah, that's fantastic, though, because if anybody who hasn't heard of X-Culture, and it's it's coming to more universities now, is that, is that right? Mm-hmm. It seems like it's been growing a lot lately. Absolutely. Yeah, it's a, it's a great thing, and I, I don't think you necessarily have to have the program at your school to participate. Is that correct? I don't know. Hmm. Well, something to think about. I don't know. I'll, I'll come back to you all next week with that one. But anyway, it's a, it's a great uh, thing. And basically to give you guys some more background on what it is, uh, do you want to get into that? Or? Go for it. Okay. So basically, uh, a bunch of companies kind of propose uh, a problem that they're having, and you pretty much as uh, a team make uh, not exactly a bid because there's no money involved, even though uh, if they do pick up your, your idea, there's there's other good things that come with that. And you're invited to the, the international symposium where they talk about your idea and I think you can give a pitch or something like that. It's been a while. Uh, but it's fantastic. You get a chance to uh, work with these international m and um, and really kind of apply what you've learned. So it's a beautiful thing. And if you're looking to build... Uh, your resume and your portfolio, I'd, I'd give that a shot because it's also a, a nice little certification uh, to come out with as well. So just just a note on that. Um, <clears throat> yeah, so moving on. You were at the, uh, I didn't write it down, the second role, the revitalizing uh, downtown Melbourne. Yeah, Melbourne Main Street. Melbourne Main Street. So what were kind of your, your primary responsibilities and what kind of impact... Uh, did you have there and what kind of major changes did you see to downtown Melbourne during your time there? Yeah, it was a really cool time in downtown's history. So when I took that job all over the papers here on the Space Coast was all about Project Magellan. Nobody knew what that was at the time, but we knew it was something big. And Project Magellan ended up being Northrop Grumman saying, hey, we're going to make, you know, Melbourne our flagship location and we're going to be bringing in, you know, thousands of employees. And at the same wow. time, Harris had a pretty similar announcement. So that really informed my perspective because for me, it was people are moving to Melbourne from all over the world, people that can get a job anywhere. Yeah. So not only do we have to convince them that Melbourne's a great place to live and raise their family, but we have to retain them. We have to keep those employees mm-hmm. here. So we did some really cool things downtown. I started the Melbourne Mural Project, which led to over 18 murals being painted in downtown Melbourne, one of the first and largest being the Florida Institute of Technology mural downtown. That was um, a project that Christopher Maslow and I worked on every day for about nine months to get permission to paint that wall. After we got Florida Tech to make that investment in downtown, I was able to get a grant from the state that helped us paint the rest of downtown. I was also um, uh, really helped bring the first mixed-use residential, so the Highline downtown. Um, we That is a public-private partnership, and we had to do a ton of work to get support from downtown businesses, mm-hmm. but also city council. And then... Um, Something that I'm so proud of is the work that Melbourne Main Street and I did to get approval for Hotel Melby and to bring investors here and have them see the beauty and the potential in downtown Melbourne the way that we saw it, the way that um, we knew it could be. And so I did a lot of that. I also did a ton of work when it came to homelessness. 
Um, so we were able to get the city of Melbourne for the first time ever to give $50,000 for a case manager. So when we had instances of homelessness downtown, um, we were able to call a case manager to connect that person to re sources and de-escalate the situation. We did not want to arrest our way out of it. Mm -hmm. We knew that That's was not, not it. Um, and then I got to do some other really cool things. So I started the Downtown Melbourne Food and Wine Festival where I brought together 60 restaurants and over 250 wines and closed up all of downtown and sold out over 3,000 tickets um, and just created a brand new experience. And then one of the other very, very cool things that I got to do was I got to host Florida Tech's Homecoming Fest. So during that time, I got to host bands like Matt and Kim, and I got to see Wyclef John climb a tree in downtown Melbourne and oh. sing a song and just kind of step back and look at 5,000 people standing in downtown Melbourne, rocking out to this nationally recognized band. And so for me, it was all about how can we create ways for people to create memories in downtown. Our vision for that Florida Tech mural was that, you know, you were going to take a picture in front of it on graduation day. And then when you come back as an alum, you're going to create that same memory with your family. All of those things create a sense of resident attachment. It's how you grow to love your city, identify with your city, want to stay in your city. And so it was really this combination of building up downtown to meet the quality of life needs that were happening and using it as a tool to attract and retain talent mm. for these big companies. Um, one of the things we were able to do was we were able to recruit Crush 11 downtown. That was, they were in Cocoa Village, one of the higher end, more sophisticated restaurants in our area. And we had an open space and I sat with the property owners and we said, what is the best restaurant we can get to come downtown? What's our dream? And we said, Crush 11. And then we said, let's go do it. And we recruited them like you would a Division One football recruit at Alabama, <laughs> right? Like we seriously made our pitch to them and we were very strategic in the things that we did. And so when I walk downtown now, I get to see all these little pieces that I had a hand in shaping and that's incredibly gratifying. Yeah, that's honestly incredible and pretty inspiring because as soon as I came to Melbourne, uh, when they were recruiting me, I was kind of like asking the guys like, oh, like, how do you like the city? What's downtown like? Uh, is there a lot of stuff to do? And people are like, man, they don't call this place Mel boring for nothing. And so, I mean, after living here for years and, you know, obviously seeing some of the things that you've done and see how the city's grown, that's not the case. That reality has been shattered. It is gone. Uh, Melbourne is actually a very nice place to live. And I, I still can't get over how happy I've been here because, uh, I don't know, coming out of uh, high school, I wasn't really sure where I wanted to go, what I wanted to do, but I knew I wanted to play football. Uh, and it just landed me here and I couldn't have gotten luckier. And it's just Hotel Melby alone. That's just one of the biggest, brightest feathers in your cap, I feel like. That's fantastic. So how did, because it's a Hilton Hotel, correct? It's a Hilton Tapestry, yep. Hilton Tapestry. So what is, okay, so Hilton Tapestry, what does that mean? It means that it's a boutique version of their hotels, and it allows you to customize that hotel. It's not cookie cutter. Okay. It allows you to really create something that represents the place that is in. Um, so when I think about Hotel Melby, I think about a project that so clearly speaks to the potential of Melbourne, but at the same time 
has been so long overdue for us to have something like that. So um, I love getting to walk in through those doors and having that city feel and going up to the rooftop and being able to see all of downtown. Um, so that project took so much dedication and persistence by the developers, but um, everybody wanted it and we knew this was the place for it. It just took us a few years to convince others to believe in it as much as we did. And thank God you did, because it's an absolute beautiful building. And also just the name, Hotel Melby, because nobody calls Melby, because just the goofballs I know call it Melby. And so when we saw that up on, you know, the high rise building, just Hotel Melby, we all, all were like screaming and giggling to ourselves. So good, good job on that one. But uh, yeah, so that's it's really interesting because uh, when I came here, that's probably the first thing I noticed. I was like, the coast really isn't developed because, uh, you know, I've been over to Clearwater and Destin is where I'm from. And those areas are usually are pretty, pretty highly developed on the coast. Um, so do you think that that's something that's going to, uh, I guess, continue for Melbourne? Are we going to see some of these builder, bigger buildings start to pop up and tourism start to rise? Is that something the city is really focused on or... I think it's going to, I mean, when you look at what's happening with the private space industry here, right, that's a huge driver of tourism. I hope that Melbourne and the Space Coast in general keeps that that constant conflict between small town feel with big city touches. I think there's things we have to do to support companies like Grumman and Harris and Tomahawk Robotics mm -hmm. so that they can keep their employees here. A lot of that has to do with what kind of retail offerings we have, what kind of Very restaurants true. do we have, what kind of services are we providing when you go to those places. But you hope that Melbourne gets to stay a place where I can go to a beach where there's some activity, but I can also just pull over on the side of the road and go to a beach yeah. with my husband where I still don't really see anyone. So I think that's what makes Hotel Melby so special is that it wasn't just some unknown developers that were going to come put something in our downtown whether we mm -hmm. kind of wanted it or not that these were two people that really took the time to understand who we are who we could be and how they can fit in to what was happening mm -hmm. and that's oh goodness i still need to get up there the so the rooftop bar but anyway i think we covered everything looking at my notes that i can barely read um Oh yeah. So while you were kind of in that position, what what would you say is the most difficult part? Because I feel like you mentioned uh, kind of lobbying city council to push some of these initiatives through. Would that probably be the, the I don't want to put words in your mouth. What do you think? That would not be the hardest part for me. So the hardest part of that job um, really was it's a very small organization with a very big task. So a lot of the things that I did, I did kind of just me and one staff member. Mm -hmm. um, so throwing an event like Food and Wine Festival, that was really me going to my amazing husband and my good friends and who turned into volunteers who physically helped me do that. Um, a lot of it was also, you know, when you're in those roles, you're kind of a public figure. So you go out to dinner and, and people want to talk to you too, but sometimes you just want to talk to your husband. Um, it was a really hard job because you're dealing with so many businesses who all have their own perspectives and their own mm -hmm. agenda and you can never make anyone happy and people are not going to agree. So you just have to keep coming back to 
what is in the best interest of downtown Melbourne and Mm -hmm. making those decisions and hoping that people will see that and they will come along with you and they will support you in the efforts that you're doing. Yeah, well, it seems like you kind of got that down packed because a lot of people see you as a leader and, I mean, me me as well uh, because just my time at Groundswell alone has has taught me so much and I'm so thankful for that opportunity and and all the people that you've connected me with because actually one of my past professors put me in contact with – with Jaron, which led me to uh, my, my current position. So, so super thankful. And once again, just that network. Just And this is one of the professors that I keep in touch with. I've had meetings with. Uh, and he's just a really nice guy. Shout out Bob Keimer. Um, he's best. Yeah. So um, moving on to Groundswell, because that's where you went after uh, uh, that, right? Yeah. Okay, so how how did you how did you get into that? Where did you just see it pop up one day? Were you part of like the founding group that you know uh, opened the doors, or when did you come into the? I was the not. I've always known about Groundswell. I've always been around it. Always kind of had collaborations with it. Um, and so the founders of Groundswell, one of them is Bud Daffabach, and Bud um, was also a property owner in downtown at the time. So he got to see the work that I was doing. So every now and then, Bud and I would go out to lunch and he'd be like, hey, what about Groundswell? And in my head, I was like, that place is not for me. That's not for me. (laughs) Um, And so in uh, 2019, um, Bud and I started really having some real conversations. I was getting ready to uh, possibly move to Marco Island to take an assistant city manager position. Wow. um, Because I kind of wanted to do the work that I was doing downtown, but do it in a different context. So Bud and I started having conversations kind of weekly, and I got to meet Bud's wife, um, who I really loved her vision and her perspective on things. And um, they offered me this unique position where I could come and run Groundswell, but they were also starting a family foundation. And that family foundation was going to focus on bringing economic mobility to the South Melbourne area, who has been largely left behind from the opportunities that we see throughout the county. Mm -hmm. And so it was a super unique position with a ton of flexibility. And so I kind of just said, yeah, I'll do that. And now that I'm at Groundswell, um, which is I, I, I tell Bud all the time, is just like, I love Groundswell. It is such a special place. It was made with so much goodness that I know people can feel that right when you walk into that building. Oh, yeah. I love the ideas that people have and how we can help them take steps forward to bringing their ideas to life. It's really cool people, a really cool culture. I lucked out that they had already hired Shay Anderson before I got there, and she is just like, I call her my little piece of gold, but she is. (laughs) She's incredible, and I love working with her, and it makes all the difference in the world when you have um, that kind of relationship and that kind of similar vision for what we want Groundswell Mm -hmm. to be. Yeah, absolutely. Shay is fantastic from from day one, because obviously, admittedly, when I came in green, I had no idea what was going on. You saw me. I came in with, you know the the business professional the you know uh button down shirt long pants dress shoes and everybody was like looking at me like calm down <laughs> that's not the vibes here you're in a you're in a retrofitted skate park there's beer on tap everybody's you know working at their own ideas just uh cracking cracking away and uh, it's fantastic i never look back this yeah. is you know Groundswell is, is a great place. But um, 
so within Groundswell, uh, what are your major responsibilities? Because I know you organize events like the Kickstarter event mm -hmm. uh, that Dylan just had, which was an awesome event, very successful. They met the, the 10K goal, right, in two hours or something yep. like that, which is amazing. And uh, I know we talked about Dylan on the last podcast, but another shout out again. Uh, his company is Sea Threads. They make uh, breathable, functional uh, outer uh, outdoor clothing. I guess you could call it uh, from 100% recycled ocean plastic. Every shirt is one pound of recycled ocean plastic. So, give them a look, buy a shirt, pledge some money. Uh, great things coming from them. Um, yeah. So, you organize events like that. Uh, what other kind of things take up a lot of your time at Groundswell? Yeah, I do all of our marketing and communications and all of the content creation that mm -hmm. you'll see in our LinkedIn and our Facebook and our Instagram, um, which takes a considerable amount of time because everything that we produce is original content, um, telling the stories of our companies. I take endless amounts of meetings with entrepreneurs and companies and connect them to resources in our network or um, facilitate meetings with them and mentors, which which is um, takes a lot of time. And then it's building partnerships. How can I build partnerships with sponsors and area companies so that I am continuously bringing resources into Groundswell so that we can continue to provide great services to our companies? Yeah, that's great. So you mentioned kind of uh, taking meetings with entrepreneurs. So do you kind of meet with uh, the newbies or the people who want to, you know, start working at Groundswell and leveraging uh, the network and resources there to kind of evaluate if they're a good fit? Or is it pretty much like if you want to come, you know, the doors are open where everybody is welcome. No idea is too crazy. No idea is too crazy, but there's some ideas that are a better fit for us than others. And so if an idea is not a good fit for us, or that entrepreneur is not an entrepreneur that is focused on collaboration, then they're probably not the right fit for Groundswell. Mm. Groundswell is a place for entrepreneurs who want to be part of a community, who want to collaborate, who want to be invested in each other's ideas. So. Um, Usually people get our vibe, and if you get it, you stay, and if you don't, you kind of self-select out, so it does, it does the job for us. But I meet from anyone who says, hey, I have an idea. Can I come in and talk to you to a company who's looking to raise venture capital and how we can get their pitch decks ready? We mm -hmm. run an idea stage accelerator, which is a 10-week cohort-based program that helps companies validate their ideas. So I am heavily invested in those companies and in that program. Um, so it's a little bit of everything. We're a small nonprofit that does really big things. We have a small staff, so um, there's nothing that's kind of out of the realm that I don't do from taking out the garbage to, uh, you know, helping companies raise. It's all it's all part of my responsibilities there at Groundswell. Heck yeah, that's uh, that's awesome. And it could not function without you, I know that much, uh, just from being there the short time I have. Uh, and also just the fantastic, I don't want to call it a safety net, more of just, uh, I don't know, like a launch stand. Because a, a couple company has, companies have really taken off from Groundswell, and you mentioned one earlier, Tomahawk Robotics. So were you there? Because I'm not sure when they made the move, because I actually interviewed with them, uh, Brad Truesdale, the, the CEO, for uh, just like a BD intern position a while ago, of course. You know, it didn't work out. <laughs> no shade to Brad, though. He's a great guy. Um, 
So when did they make the move and did you kind of witness any part of, you know, their, their blow up? Yeah. So, um, there about three years ago is when they left, um, a local tech defense company and took a small office at Groundswell. Um, they in three years have gone from, you know, three guys that left a company to 30 employees in a building of their own. So I got there right when all of their very exciting growth was about to happen. They've, um, you know, Bud and John and Mark, our founders of Groundswell, have been, you know, essential in, in helping them grow and gain access to resources. And of course, keeping them close to Groundswell by facilitating that new building. But they just announced yesterday a $4 million contract with Marine Corps. That. That's awesome. Um, they have more exciting announcements to come out, but they are, I mean, they are paving the way for growth. When Tomahawk needed that building, they needed that expansion and they moved in. It allowed other companies in our ecosystem mm -hmm. to shift and get into bigger offices and have more space. And now Tomahawk uses our prototyping lab to get some of their mm -hmm. overmolding done, right? So you have this whole facilitation of business and resources and knowledge going back and forth that is what makes Groundswell Groundswell. Like Groundswell is all about the community. And so to have someone like Tomahawk Robotics doing what they're doing and showing others that it can be done too, and the type of work that they do, it's just, it's super exciting. It really is. And then also, you know, the neighboring building, Critical Frequency, uh, they're doing great things over there as well. And uh, I'm going to get one of them one of these days because all these guys coming from the big defense companies, in my mind, I'm like, why would you leave such a cushy job like that? Uh so there's got to be, you know, something there that either bothered them or they saw an opportunity that made them want to take that leap. So we'll see who I can get my hands on. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, it's really cool. Lots of really exciting stuff. So uh, another thing I want to get into is kind of the mentorship that people can see through Groundswell. So how do you facilitate those mentorship relationships and how do you find mentors? Yeah, I was lucky that when I got to Groundswell, they had a really good mentor base that I was able just to build from. But, you know, you really need people that have startups really need a specific type of experience and knowledge when it comes to raising and scaling and, and, and doing the things that they do. And so, um, you know, we use our founders connect us to a lot of people. Um, sometimes people move to the area and they want to be connected with this community. Mm -hmm. They want to give back. But you really need people who have nothing to gain from helping somebody else. That's really the key is that you're going to sit in a meeting with a mentor and they're never going to try to sell you anything. We don't take mm -hmm. any equity in the companies that we serve. Our number one rule is to be good to startups. And so you really need people that our values are deeply aligned um, and we keep an eye on it. If you're going to meet with a mentor, I'm going to check in with that mentor. I'm going to check in with that company. I'm going to see how that relationship went. And if something happened that is outside of Groundswell's culture, we're going to be very frank in telling mm -hmm. you how we feel about that because that's everything to us. And so um, really we take an individualized approach. I meet with companies. I kind of get a feel of what they need, what their personalities are, who would be a good fit to work together because we want the mentors to have a good experience too. We want them to be excited about it. So we sort of curate these connections um, just based on our experience and our network and what we know the companies want and need. 
Yeah, and it seems like you guys are doing a great job because there's a lot of growth uh, happening at Groundswell. So kudos. Yeah. Uh, so moving on to one other thing that I thought was interesting uh, that kind of piqued my attention. So when you're talking about sponsors, because there's a wall at Groundswell where it's, you know, the, the skateboard, uh, what's the main part of the skateboard without yeah. the trucks. I forget yeah. what it's, you know, that's that shows how much I'm into skateboarding. But uh, yeah, with the different sponsor names. So are those people that you had to kind of go out and recruit and like talk to and kind of build a business relationship or were they just all trying to hop on board? They were like, great things are happening at Groundswell. Uh, we just want to get in and, and kind of leverage Groundswell to also create more brand awareness for themselves. Yeah, it's a little bit of everything. So I was lucky that um, we have a lot of core sponsors that have been with us from the beginning um, that we have really great relationships with who, again, don't want to get anything out of it, but they deeply believe in what we're doing. Um, I was very lucky that when I came on, I was able to bring on um, TSS Solutions, um, which is a great company in the area. CEO Don DeFrisco and Joe Carroll are, th are the leads there. And they came in as Groundswell's title sponsor. And they're people that just get it. Like they get the economic impact that we're making. Mm -hmm. um, we don't take any government funding. So everything that you've seen at Groundswell has been over a million dollars in charitable giving to Groundswell to create wow. that facility. So, um, you know, some people just get it and they're not looking for anything in return. Um, but those people are really hard to find. <laughs> so we're lucky that we have the ones that we do. But yeah, we we are always looking for people that will come on and donate so that we can continue to build out resources and continue to fulfill our mission of helping startups on the Space Coast. Yeah, that's that's awesome. And it seems like uh, sponsorship is, well, I don't know because I don't know the statistics behind it, but it definitely seems like it's grown because, like you said, uh, all of the kind of retrofitting the building and, and everything like that. And it's an awesome building. Beautiful I mean, it's building. a it used to be a, a skate park. And they've made a, a lot of changes, and it's it's absolutely beautiful. And the the different, I guess, well, they're like shipping containers. They right? are, yeah. So how did you guys, were you there when everything was kind of being? I was not. This whole project and um, really the catalyst for Groundswell itself is um, Jenna Reed, who is um, phenomenal. She is a grassroots community builder. She is still very much part of Groundswell. She actually runs the social media for Swift Paws. Awesome. Um, so she really was the catalyst behind bringing the demand for startups on the Space Coast together. She oversaw the construction of the building. Christopher Maslow, um, who kind of curated the space. Um, so that was all done before I got there, but done exceptionally well. Um, it was built by our partner, Certified General Contractors, who are a sponsor of Groundswell, who built Tomahawk, who are, you know, again, get what we do. So it was just, again, it was just, it was made with a lot of goodness. Absolutely. And like you said earlier, I mean, you can feel it when you walk in. Yeah. I mean, Shay, Shay is right there by the door, yep. just smiling all the time. Uh, so that's fantastic. Uh, so, yeah, I guess uh, one of my last questions, because we're kind of creeping up on an hour here. I don't know if you got a time crunch today. But uh, is do you see uh, any kind of growth in the near future for Groundswell? And if you guys were to grow, where would you get, like, another office? Would you, like, lease a – I don't know. What does that look like? 
Yeah, so I definitely think there will be growth. I think the momentum on our street is undeniable what's happening. You can see it um, in the cars parked out front, how yeah. busy we are. You can see it and who's turning up to our events. And you can see it in the success of our companies, for someone like Dylan that's able to fulfill his Kickstarter campaign in two hours. So we're fortunate that our founder um, has been able to purchase some property to the side of us. So there is oh, potential nice. that okay. we could expand. Um, and so, yeah, I think that this is such an exciting time for Groundswell. I think you're gonna see companies that are gonna be hiring more people, getting more contracts. Um, I think you're gonna see some new tools that we're gonna be releasing later this year that are really focused on e-commerce, which is a very exciting mm -hmm. kind of uh, area to get into, kind of not typical for an incubator, but that's the groundswell way we, we do <laughs> untypical things. Um, so yeah, I think, I think the sky's the limit, not just for groundswell, but for the companies that we serve. Which is great, very promising uh, for sure. And goodness, like you said, sky's the limit. I'm excited to see what kind of, what's what's going to come out of Groundswell uh, here in the future. Goodness, I had a the one question I thought of and didn't write down. I already forgot. Uh, goodness, that CTE is already getting to me. <laughs> no. no, I hope not. God, that scares me so bad. But uh, whatever. Uh, okay, so. We're at 52 minutes. Um, I have, wow, that was a good question. It was such a good question. Uh, oh, got one. Yeah. Finally coming back to me. So you talked about kind of your idea stage accelerator. Is that Was that the name of it? Yep. Yeah. So that basically kind of uh, really focuses in on idea validation. So get, oh, I remember my question, so we're going to go back to it. Let me write it down. Okay. Um, yeah. So, what exactly is is uh, can be expected from that process, and what do you guys uh, really try to to highlight and push forward to the the people that are coming to you with this idea? Yeah. So it is just a more structured way for people to learn a process to validate their ideas. So. You know, we're in a county of engineers, and engineers don't just have one idea, they have many ideas. And so for a lot of people, they will come in with an idea and we'll walk them through customer discovery, building a sustainable revenue model. What does that sales channel look like? And along the way, you're gonna build your pitch deck and you're gonna learn to mm -hmm. pitch your idea and it's gonna end in a pitch night. And so there's some entrepreneurs that wanna come in, they just wanna meet with a bunch of resources, get ideas and keep moving forward. And there are other ones that want to do it in a more structured way, doing it in a cohort environment where everybody's in a similar position and you're all learning from each other is incredibly powerful. It, also hold you accountable to the process. So for 10 weeks, it meets once a week on a Wednesday um, evening from 5.30 to 8 o'clock. So you don't have to quit your day job to explore your idea. We do this whole program in partnership with Starter Studio. It's their curriculum and their facilitator, but it's only Brevard-based companies that are a part of it. And so it's a really good systematic way to learn to sort your ideas. Great things happen from it. Companies launch. Right, Dylan did a friends and family raise of $60,000. Um, we have SnapHaps who are now in their first round of productions with Jcon Systems, which is a fantastic partner of Groundswell and manufacturer in the area. So it is whatever you kind of want it to be. So some people go through that program and they go, you know what, this idea isn't that good and I'm gonna do something else. 
And that's incredibly valuable. Oh, and yeah. some people go through it and they go, you know what? This whole startup thing, not for me. And that's incredibly valuable because mm -hmm. you just saved yourself a ton of time and probably a ton of money. Oh, yeah. So, and some people go through it and they're more reaffirmed and they feel more confident in spending their time and their money and taking that leap because they, they have the knowledge and the base behind their idea. So it really differs, but everybody gets something out of it. We have guest speakers every night that are people that have lived it, done it. You meet our mentors, our subject matter experts. You get a ton of one-on-one -on -one coaching. So it's been a great way to expand our ecosystem and um, help early stage entrepreneurs in a more structured way. Which is, actually, I'm running out of adjectives because everything's <laughs> fantastic and great. But uh, yeah, so that's amazing to hear. And once again, Groundswell is just possibly the best network i feel like any small business owner or entrepreneur can can find themselves uh into so i guess my next question because uh, as soon as somebody told me business incubator uh co-working space i was like okay so this is like a small we work it's not that at all so do you want to kind of go through and highlight the the big differences because there's a lot and we've covered you know most of them already from you know, the uh, the network of mentors and and the collaborative aspect. So would you say that, and because I'm just like not sure why this business model hasn't been adopted and uh, used more in different areas, or maybe I'm just ignorant to them. There's uh, co-working spaces and incubators kind of all over, right? Um, we're unique in that we don't take government funding, so we're not really, we don't have to do certain things or report to a grant to exist. Okay. Our funding comes from sponsorships, but it primarily comes from our co-working memberships and our office rentals. Um, that kind of makes this whole thing work. Um, but we're unique in that we have a prototyping lab in our incubator. That's There's probably no other incubator in the state of Florida that has a prototyping lab in-house. Um, and just the type of resources that we provide and our strong focus on a give first, right? So we're not gonna mm -hmm. sell you for anything. You can just get to know us without being a member and tap into our resources. So the flexibility that we have, I think is like deeply embedded in our culture. And I think people get a sense of that. So we're so much more than a co-working space because you can go there and if you're a remote worker, you can be part of a community. You can have random conversations at the microwave. You can go take a walk at the park and meet someone who works at Tomahawk Robotics. And also if you're looking for business, I mean, I think what's been so, um, what I've been so proud of is that startups that are coming out of Groundswell, kind of every aspect of that company has been touched by another Groundswell member from mm -hmm. branding to web design, to strategy, to you know getting a prototype made and to have it done in-house with vetted resources, people you can trust that feel a sense of responsibility to the community as a whole, I think that's a very unique experience um, and that it can all be done under one roof is super cool. And people tend to find Groundswell, so they move to the area and they kind of find us. So just recently, we've had people join us from California, wow. Oregon, Utah, St. Louis. And when people from different areas come to Groundswell, they bring their unique perspectives, they bring their unique ideas, and they bring their networks. And so we've really been able to build out this like robust ecosystem where we can, no matter kind of what walks in the door, we can probably help you. Yeah, and they can. Like, 
like uh, Jeremy was saying earlier, the rapid prototyping lab is run by Andrew Katrina, yeah. Katrina with uh, AK3D, and those things are always going. Yeah. So some somebody's always got something to print, and you're right. It does offer you know kind of a, a differentiating advantage to to businesses at uh, at Groundswell, especially if it's a product, because mm-hmm. that's you know the reason Andrew founded kind of AK3D is people needed to validate this idea, see how much it would cost, and and see if you can reduce costs anywhere by utilizing additive manufacturing. So lots of great stuff going that's on great at Groundswell. Stuff, yeah. And uh, I guess on that note, don't go to WeWork, go to Groundswell. <laughs> <laughs> no, but, they're uh, all great, right? You have to find the true, right fit true. for you. Yeah, the right fit for you, absolutely. Because yeah. like we were talking about earlier, you know, introverts, people, may, some people work better by themselves. And yep. if, if that works for you, go 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 ahead. I'm not, I'm not going to be the one to tell you what to do. <laughs> uh, Okay, so we're like pretty much at an hour. You got somewhere to be? You want to wrap this up? I do. I have to go meet with a company. Nice. Exciting. All right. So uh, if you guys have any questions for Jaren or I, uh, go ahead and hit up the layman's term email at laymansterms21 at gmail.com. Uh, yeah. And Jaren, you have anybody you want to plug or shout out while you're here? No, just come for a tour of Groundswell. We have Food Truck Friday every Friday from 12 to 2. And tonight is Idea Hour. So um, from 5 o'clock to 6 o'clock, people come to Groundswell. We have beer and pizza, and you can just brainstorm your idea, pitch a product, listen to others brainstorm. So um, come see us. There you go. Idea Hour. You heard. See you guys there.